So let's uh, let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence to study your word, to worship you in the form of song. And Father, just the opportunity we have to gather together in the name of Christ. We pray that you would be with us, lead us and guide us in our time together and help us to understand truth from scripture. Be with our our children who are over in Awana and help them learn your word as well, Father. Bless their lives. Bless our young people and then their search for knowledge and their search for truth. In all these things, Father, we want tonight, whatever age group it may be a part of, to have the opportunity to learn the truth that you have revealed to us so that we could live our lives in honor and glory to you and we could help people in their journey to come to faith in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. I'm going to say normally we try to have, I know we have Bible, uh, we have prayer time over in the conference area, uh, conference rooms at 715, but the uh, Awana classes have grown so much, they commandeered that, they told me. So what I will do is we'll kind of uh, regroup, and I'll let y'all know who participate in that, what we'll do, uh, because if they need it, they're going to get it. So it's kind of the way it works. Romans chapter 1. Uh, don't forget this Sunday, we begin a new series entitled God. Uh, we'll spend nine weeks looking at God and seeing what he has to reveal to us. Romans written by Paul, third missionary journey around 55, 56, maybe 57 AD. Um, we saw the introduction earlier. Now we get to what is really, if you, you were to say what is the thematic message of the book of Romans, it comes from Romans 1, 16 and 17. I mean, this, this kind of is the, this is what he is talking about. It's his theme. So when I preach on Sundays, uh, what I usually have is uh, after I read the scripture passage, before I get to the message, I put up on the screen what I want you to get, what, what I'm trying to get through to you. Verse 16 and 17 is what Paul is getting through to Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or through faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so what you have is Paul's declaration to a church he has not yet visited, saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, you know, why would he write it that way? There are some who say you're not, to not be ashamed of something, to be emphatic about that, it might mean there was the tendency or possibility of being ashamed. But most likely what it is is a device where the negative is used to be emphatic of the positive. So I might put it to you this way. If you were to bring me something to eat, say a cake that you made or a pie or cookies, which you may always do, if you're good, if you're not any good, don't waste your time or mine either. But if you're good, and not because you think you're good, but because people have said, Ray, hey, you're really good. And I say, you give it to me, I say, you know what, that's not half bad. That's my, that is a way of saying, hey, that's really good. By, not, by saying it's not half bad is kind of a negative way of really affirming how good it really tastes. Hey, that's a, that's a pretty, good, pretty good pie you made, pretty good cake. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, what he's really saying is that I bring forth the gospel, or I, I don't want to use the word proud of the gospel, but he might say something like this, I am one who has great confidence in the gospel. The gospel would be the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is his message. It's what he has always preached. Uh, Paul says it's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. It's through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at the heart of everything is gospel. In fact, most scholars will tell you that the book of Romans is the purest form or written explanation of the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel really is, 
spent a lot of time studying Romans, all 16 chapters of it. It is a lengthy book with a lot of complexity. But with all, within all that complexity is a very simple message. It is about the gospel. For he says it is the power, the ability to save, uh, to bring about salvation. So the purpose of gospel then is for us to see that salvation of God, power of God to bring salvation, that salvation is what the gospel leads to. The word for saved, and I've said this uh, many times when I am uh, preaching on, uh, on Sundays, comes from the word that means to rescue from imminent danger. And it could be used of a doctor performing surgery to rescue somebody from whatever that might be happening to them. It's the inability to do something ourselves that relies on someone else to do it for us. And so the salvation from our sin, the salvation from our rebellion against God requires the power that only God has. So there is a bit of spiritual irony in that the one we are rebelling against is the one who has the power to bring us to a point in place of salvation. So it is for all, he says, salvation from the power of God to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So we hear also then the theme of belief or faith. And I preached uh, quite a bit in the summer on, on faith. I'm doing a series on faith uh, next January. But throughout Romans, we see this theme of faith being essential. To put one's faith or trust in Christ. Uh, Paul will say later on um, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe within the heart, you will be saved. For that belief is what brings about the fact that we can be made right before God. And so belief, faith, trust, it's the same concept. Is essential. So here you have really the concept of gospel, salvation, and faith. Those three are always brought together. God, in his infinite grace, has brought forth the gospel of Jesus Christ for us to preach and for us to share for the purpose of salvation that comes only through him. The power to save comes from God. He expects us to believe in what he gives us. He gives us the gospel presentation with the call and expectation that we will have faith. But the power of all that is God. We have no power in and of ourselves to bring about salvation. That power resides fully, totally, and completely with God. And then he brings to verse 17. Now, verse 17 is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Paul uses it here and in Galatians 3.11. It is also found in Hebrews 10.38. When I was working on my uh, doctorate, I had to... Uh, uh, I was taking a course in, uh, uh, in that process of a certain amount of literature, and I uh, was assigned by my professor uh, to do a thorough examination of the book of Habakkuk. And in doing that thorough examination of the book of Habakkuk, I had to write a lengthy paper. Now, when you're in, in that type of coursework, papers aren't four to five pages. Uh, like seminary students today, you guys write, what, two, three-page stuff, Joe, on your doctorate that you're working on? You know, stuff like Barry, half a page book report. We're talking 30 pages of scholarly work, single space and .5 bolt, you know, print, stuff like that. But in the book of Habakkuk, he is struggling, the prophet is, with the fact, and this is, you know, this is right around, you know, 605, 600 B.C., right before the exile occurs. He is struggling because the rich in Israel and Judah are oppressing the poor. He says, God, how long you can allow the rich to oppress the poor? And God says, no, not much longer. I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to send the Babylonians, a cruel, wicked, and vile, disgusting pagan people, and they're going to take you all into captivity. And then Habakkuk says, well, God, that's, 
That's not what I had in mind. That's a worse solution than this. But what do we do? And he says, I'm going to go just wait for your answer. And God says this. Listen to me, Habakkuk. I will resolve everything in my time. He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, remember this. The righteous man, the just man, will live by faith. In other words, your task and through all of what happens in life, if you, have, if you are a right person with me, if you have, if you have a true salvation with me, is to live by faith and trust me. So what you have here then is Paul quoting Habakkuk. This verse, by the way, is the verse that moved Martin Luther to salvation, for it talks about the righteousness of God. And so I want to spend a few moments talking about the righteousness of God. What is it? The word righteous comes from a concept to be straight, to be in line, to be in order. It is one of the three or four most important themes in all of Scripture. Righteousness, to be right before God. Most of the time, we take the concept of righteousness as a moral attribute that we need to live a righteous or good or moral life. That's acceptable. That's kind of, you know, when we look at it that way, what we're seeing then from that standpoint is that there's a way we have to behave. The problem is we can't live a righteous, moral, or good life. We are sinners in the eyes of God. Righteousness fundamentally has to be in, and when it's looked at from a New Testament perspective, and not everyone agrees with this, but if you overall, when everything is said and done, you do all the study and all the preparation, and you weigh all the evidence, it is primarily a legal term that depicts one's standing. One is in a particular standing. It has to do with rightness, being where you should be. Now, what we need to realize is that God is righteous. And because God is righteous, he is exactly where he needs to be. He is perfect, complete, without flaw, without sin. We are not righteous. For all his life, Martin Luther believed that to speak of the righteousness of God was to speak of a righteousness that God possessed that we could not, that God would use to judge and condemn us. But upon reading the book of Romans and this verse, he began to realize that the righteousness of God here is not describing God. It is describing what God imparts to us. Not a moral quality, but a standing before him. We call that standing, that God grants to us a standing of righteousness. We call that the doctrine of justification. If you read sometimes the word justify, the word righteous, it is the exact same Greek word. It depends on how you categorize it. To be justified is to be legally in right standing, to be where you should be. The book of Romans is a book fundamentally about us in a position of justification or being justified before God. The issue is, how does that justification occur? And the answer that Paul will give is it occurs solely by God. Justification is from God. He makes us, or declares us, I should say, to be just. We are sinful people who on our own accord cannot be right. We cannot make ourselves right. We cannot transform ourselves to be right. But in his infinite grace and mercy through Christ, by his grace, in the power of the faith that he bestows that we exercise in him, God declares us to be right. So he says the righteousness that comes from God, that ability that God has to put us in right standing that we do not have, for the righteousness of God is revealed, notice what he says, from faith to faith. If you have the NIV, I think it says from faith first to last. In other words, it is, a, it is completely and totally in the realm of faith that you and I are declared right by God. 
there is no way for us to be right without faith. But there is no way for us to have faith until God also deems us to be right. In other words, what you see in the book of Hebrews, see in the book of Romans, I'm still in Hebrews sometimes, is that God in his grace bestows upon us the faith we use and in doing so declares us right. So Paul says this, the righteous man or woman will live by faith. Now, some of your versions may have this, but the righteous by faith shall live. That sentence, both in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk and here, it's a very kind of difficult sentence to translate. Not difficult because of the words, because of the word order. So some people take it to mean this, that the righteous, man, the righteous person by faith will live. In other words, the righteous person who is righteous by faith will live. They'll have eternal life. But the way it's presented in the American Standard, which is probably the most accurate, is that the righteous will live by faith. The six and one half does the other. What it's saying is this. The person who is declared right by God then gives the example of that being right by their faith. Faith is the evidence. It is the evidence that you and I are right standing with God. So the whole realm of righteousness is from faith first to last. God has declared us righteous in Christ. It is a faith proposition entirely. And then we continue to live the life of a person who is right by faith. It moves beyond simply being a moral quality, which you and I cannot live up to, to a positional aspect of where God expects us to be and he has placed us. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We are made right by God. He makes us right. He declares us right. We are right because of God. That is the theme of Romans. To explain that whether you're Jew or Gentile, your position in life, you're Jewish, that position of being Jewish is not a determining factor of your salvation. It does not matter whether you are Jewish or Gentile. You are all sinners. In fact, we're fixing to step into verse 18, and from verse 18 to the end of chapter 3, Paul lays out about four ways that he demonstrates that all of us, whether Greek, that which is Gentile or Jewish, are utterly sinful in the eyes of God. We are complete and total sinfulness. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned. We are all sinful. So there's nothing we can do to get us into a place to be declared right by God. It is totally about the faith that he gives us that we exercise in him and him declaring us to be right. So, having made that bold statement, which defines the gospel for Paul, he says that we are saved by faith. It is the power of God unto salvation through the gospel of Jesus. In that, in that faith, in that gospel, God declares us to be in right standing. Because we are in right standing, we live that way. And now he's going to show us all the ways of sinful man in which we demonstrate that we are not, by our own accord, right in the eyes of God. So verse 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 32 he is going to deal primarily in the realm of paganism. He's going to talk about two relationships, the vertical relationship we have with God and the horizontal relationship we have with other people. He's going to talk about two primary examples, and then he's going to end the chapter with 21 quick, given in a list form, things that we do, <laughs> descriptions of us, that exemplify the total depravity that we have. And so that when you come to the end of chapter 1, you realize we are totally and sinfully wicked before the eyes of God, unless God does something to save us. So he starts off in verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed, and so I'll stop right there, because we 
especially as Americans in this, this generation, we despise the concept of someone having wrath. And I hear many people say the problem they have with God is the concept of wrath. How can God have wrath? It's because we don't understand wrath. We look at human wrath. I always think of the wrath. I think of the movie that came out a while back, The Wrath of Khan, the, the Star Trek movie. Anybody Trekkie folk? I'm not a Star Trek person. That's not I mean. It's fine. I'm, a, I'm more of a Star Wars guy. But, um, you know, but you have the wrath of Khan. That, and the wrath is, is seen as just violent anger, retribution. Human anger, human wrath is very selfish. We've been offended. We want some sense of vengeance. We want somehow to justify ourselves. So we, if we get a chance, exercise wrath upon someone else. I can I, you know, think of examples in my life, not in a really bad sense, but I, I can think of a few times that, uh, that maybe in my anger I wanted to, to exert a little wrath on somebody and kind of, and kind of teach them a, a lesson. It's that wrath. We want to prove a point. It's very, very selfish. Uh, when, I was, uh, uh, when I officiate football a long time ago especially, I would, uh, in, in Laredo, they were all very bitter, and so I was officiating a 7th or 8th grade game, I don't know what it was, and this one team was beating this other team really bad, and they kept running up the score, and uh, so I kept, I just kept flacking them, bringing them back from all these plays, and, and kept denying them touchdowns, I went to the coach, and I just said, knock it off, you're not running the score up, and he goes, you don't understand, last year they beat us, and I owe them, blah, 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 and we're going to run it up, I said, no, you're not, but that's beside the point. It's that idea that we owe somebody. we got to pay them back, and no matter what happens. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath, and the word for wrath in, in the New Testament word, speaks of a very slow, patient process. It speaks really of if you want to bring a pot to boil, you don't not turn it up to high to get it to boil quickly, but to be very patient and just, you know, just get it a few degrees above boiling point. And whatever the boiling point is, when it's 212 degrees, get it just a few degrees above that, let it boil very, very slowly. That's what the word means. It's a slow, patient, simmering, but it comes to a point when enough's enough. And wrath is based on the holiness of God. And wrath is God's holy action towards sin. The classic definition of wrath is God's holy action. Some say reaction, but I'll say holy action towards sinfulness. It is a way for God to justify the fact that he is holy and we are sinful. It's not based on some sort of anger. It's not based on the fact that God is offended and has to strike back. It is based on this fact that God is holy. We are not. And because we rebel against God, there has to be a consequence for that rebellion. So here is what is said. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So what you see here then is an explanation of what we call general revelation. That there is a way that God has revealed himself to us generally. And it's the idea that all people know within themselves that a God exists and that they have an obligation to live in a relationship to God, and none of us do because of our sin. So he talks about the fact that totally within the realm of God, and everything we know about God is revealed by God. In my sermon on Sunday, I'm, gonna, I'm preaching out of another, another book in the Old Testament. I make that statement, all we can know about God is because God reveals himself. The wrath of God is revealed, and it's revealed from heaven, the place where he reigns. And notice what it's revealed against. 
ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So when we act ungodly, which is towards God, and unrighteously, which is towards men. In other words, there is that moral quality there. We act in a way that is in rebellion against God and is wicked towards others. We, we, we destroy the vertical relationship with God and ungodliness and the horizontal relationship with other in unrighteousness. How do we do it? Because we suppress the truth in our state of unrighteousness. In our state of not being righteous, we suppress what is true. What is true? Well, what is true is something we know about God. It's evident within them. Why? Because God has made it evident. So when someone says they don't believe in God, you know, they may say that and believe it, but God tells us that at some point they do. Everyone knows within themselves there is something beyond themselves, whatever they categorize it. It is a truth that God has made evident. He has chosen to reveal himself to us in a general way. Now, the general revelation is not enough to save us. Specific revelation, which is found in Jesus, saves us. Let's go all the way back to my series on Hebrews, the very first you know, sermon I preached, Hebrews 1.1. You know, long ago and in different times and in different ways, God spoke through the prophets, but now he in these last days has spoken to us through his son. He is the final revelation of God. He is the specific way that God chooses to reveal himself. All of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God specifically revealing himself. That's why all the book of all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation focuses on Jesus, who is the ultimate specific or special revelation of God. But here he says all of us know it some way. And then he gives two examples, one vertical, one horizontal. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse or they are without excuse. So everybody knows through the creation, through what is there, the Psalms bring that out. The Psalms talk about knowing God. Now think about this. Every culture in the world has some type of religion. It's a unique thing. You can go and discover a culture that you did not know and exists, and it has some type of religious expression. Atheism is not natural. It is a learned trait that comes from an intellectual rebellion against God. Left on our own devices, we are all sinful, but we still believe that God exists. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, looking at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, they were rebelling against God. They may, we may rebel against God, but we still know God is there. They're without excuses. Yes. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, that's human nature, we became fools. And notice what it says. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So here's what they did. They looked at the world that God created and knew that God was there. And knowing that God was there, understanding that God created everything. So what do they do? They took what God created and worshipped his creation instead of the creator. So they either took wood, stone, made idols and worshipped, or they worshipped the sun. But what they did is they created gods of their own devices, gods that somehow they could control and manipulate. And they refused to worship the one true God who created. In other words, they didn't worship the creator. They worshipped everything else. And they may have made up other gods. And if you look at mythology of any type, all the gods and goddesses they create are just different types of humans with different type of powers, 
or abilities. All religion apart from the faith of Christ, and we'll extend Judaism to also as well, is a man-made, made-up religion that God never ordained and God never sanctioned. That's why all religions aren't the same, and all religions don't get us to God because God didn't create all those religions. Man did. So we took what God created, and in our foolishness, we worshiped creation. Now notice what it says next. This is really, really critical. So that, therefore, God, notice this, gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them over. The wrath of God, too often we think simply of the wrath of God is him punishing us. The wrath of God is God giving us over to the lust and desires of our heart and our life. So look at human culture and human history. As man has rejected God, God has given them over to that rebellion and allowed them to face the consequences of rejecting him. And the consequences of rejecting him is God no longer in grace withholding evil from them, but allowing the evilness of their hearts to consume themselves and destroy their lives. Just read the story of Israel. Just read the story of Israel and Kings, First and Second Kings. God gave them up. They, you read the book of Judges. The book of Judges, they rejected God. They worshipped the pagan gods around them. And God gave them over. And all of the pagan nations around them would destroy them. They would capture them, take them into captivity. They would cry out to God and God would deliver them. In the book of Kings, they constantly flirted with pagan gods. God said, okay, have it your way. You want to live like that? You want to follow the pagans? I'll give you over to the pagans, and the pagans always destroy you. It's the same way in our culture today. Because we reject God, we oftentimes face the consequences of that. Put aside your notions for a moment of America being a Christian nation. I understand that. Put aside your notions of that and just realize this. We live in a country where people routinely, routinely reject God. They routinely deny God. They live in antagonism against God. And then you look at the world around us and our culture and see all the problems that we are having as a culture, as a society. In some ways, it is God giving us over. It is a responsibility of Christians to bring the gospel into that world because through the gospel, people's lives will change. The gospel, Paul said, is the power of salvation. If we who are right before God will live that way and we take the gospel, we can see the gospel change lives. But if we pull out the gospel and refuse to share the gospel, God gives nations over to their sin. Because they have rejected him. So when we look at God and say, how can God allow certain things to happen all throughout the world? It is God allowing us to live with the results of the freedom we want. Understand, when you want the freedom to reject God, God will give you the freedom that comes with that, but he gives you the consequences. You can't reject God and say, I don't want things, I don't want to worship you and serve you, and then blame God when things go poorly because we keep messing that stuff up. I hear that all the time. I can't possibly believe in a God who would allow all these bad things to happen. God allows these bad things to happen because you've rejected him. You don't want God to have anything to do with your life. Don't whine about God giving you over to your sin. That's the choice you made when you rejected him. Oh, God goes on. Now he deals with the vertical. What you're going to see is both in the, I mean, the horizontal, the vertical and the horizontal in the eyes of God are unnatural things. Worshiping what God created is unnatural. It's illogical. 
It doesn't make sense. Then we come to the next part. And, oh, people love these next verses. <laughs> I don't know many preachers who like to preach out of here. For this reason, God gave them over to notice this degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the man abandoned the natural function, abandoned it of the woman, and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their errors. So, he gives another example. This is the, the horizontal relationships. Women seeking after women and men seeking after men, abandoning, he says, abandoning the natural way things go. Now, put aside religion. Put aside faith. Put aside humanity. Look at nature. Males and females mate. Females don't mate with females, and males don't mate with males. By the way, dogs don't mate with cats. Birds don't mate with fish. Nature understands. The animal world understands how the process goes. But man has decided to distort that. And we come up with all sorts of things. We have all sorts of reasons for that. And I hear all the time people say, well, that's the way God made me. No, God didn't make you that way. Sin made you that way. And I met Chandler, uh, pastor of the village uh, church up in Dallas, close friend of Joe Andrews, I believe. You and Matt are close, right? You saw him on an elevator. I tease Joe all the time about stuff. Don't, I, most of what I say about Joe, don't ever believe because I'm teasing. He is a great husband and father, by the way. Um, there was a subtlety when I said that you didn't catch. Matt Chandler says this, God made me, you know, to, to love women, if you want to put it that way. But he says, I can only love one. You can blame God for everything you want, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't get to do what you want to do and blame God for it. God says certain things are wrong. Now, listen, I understand it's a touchy subject today, and I get that, and I don't go out of my way to pick a fight with anybody. Let me just say this. Christ also says that we love all people. We love all people. So, people in the homosexual community, we love them. People in the homosexual community that come to worship with us are welcome to come and worship with us. We would love, and we do. Every week we have people from the homosexual world come to worship with us. And we love to have them here. We love to share the gospel. We love all people to come here. If Muslims come here, they're welcome. If Buddhists was to come here, they're welcome. I don't even, even if a Lutheran comes here, they're welcome to come. Because <laughs> remember what I said many times. People don't change in order to come to Christ. They come to Christ in order to change. But we have to be honest and understand that just because someone says it's okay, if God doesn't say it's okay, it's not. Don't be on the opposite side of God in any argument. By the way, that holds true for adultery. Uh, that holds true for fornication. That holds true for pornography. It holds true for all of that. It's all sinful. Here's the example given. Notice what he says. In verse, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, because this is not acknowledging God, God gave them over to their own depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Gave them over to that. You want it? You got it. And notice what it says in verse 29. And being filled with all unrighteousness, he then goes on to list 21 other sins. So before you just pick on one, he just used an example. He lists 21 more. And homosexuality isn't worse than these other 21. It's 22 sins, 23 counting idolatry. They're all corrupting. They're all in natural wickedness. I mean, I'm going to just say this before I listen. I'm not going to go into all that. Whenever you see lists, especially with Paul, they're not exhaustive. In other words, it's not everything there is. What they do are representative. In other words, it's inclusive. It's including the whole sphere of things, not being exhaustive. So look at this. 
Wickedness, greed. How many have greed? How many have greed in your life? You're just as guilty as anyone else. Evil. You have envy. You murder. Strife. You're gossips. Just as sinful. It's unnatural. The malice, the slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. The Old Testament, you know what it says? You're disobedient to parents, what they'll do with you? Stone you. I've seen some of the kids that go to church here. My goodness, if they follow the Old Testament, we wouldn't have but five kids left. It's a parenting problem. Mostly it's not a kid problem. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. How many of you like mercy? And though they know the ordinance of God, those that practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, all of those things listed are part of general revelation. Every person created by God, which is everybody, understands then, or should understand, that any of those things is a violation of the natural revelation of God. So here's what we see. All of us, then, are not in right standing with God because of all of that sin. Pick your sin. It doesn't matter which one. All of us are not in right standing with God, and there's nothing we can do. But God, through the power of the gospel, will transform lives. And only God will transform a life. And once your life is transformed, you live by faith. Because God has declared you legally to be right in his eyes. You are justified. You live your life by faith. And in living our life by faith, we preach the gospel to all the people who need to hear it. Because they, like us, are outstanding before God. Well, seems like a pretty good place to start. stop since that's all I study. Anybody have any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Are they? Is what you're asking me? Are they reprobates? I'm asking you. I think they probably are because none of them that other than uh, very few well, except You know, other nations, and, and, and understand, and you bring up a good term, point of the term nation. In, in Scripture, the word nation is people group, not political entity. Even if it refers to a political entity, it's still a people group. And so, Joe, I forget the number. What is it? 6,000 people groups? Is that right? 7,000 in the world, you remember? Yeah, he's just agreeing with me because he forgot also. But I thought since you went to the International Missionary School, you might know these numbers, but I guess I was wrong on that. Uh, Though there's something like 7,000 people groups, uh, of which about 4,000 have heard the gospel, Joe. Is that right? Again, I'm referring to you as the foreign mission expert. About 4,000. So all these groups out there, all these nations, many of them never heard the gospel. Yes, all of them have had general revelation. All of them have had... The knowledge, and all of them is sin rebelled against God. Now, I will say this. I'll always leave it up to God to decide to do whatever he's going to decide to do. I'm going to go with the assumption from Scripture that all of them fall into the category of what Romans want, especially the worshiping of the created. I mean, uh, yeah, the created. So if all these people groups are worshiping in a way that's false, then they all stand under the wrath of God. I do allow for the fact that somehow God may work in those groups in a, way, in a miraculous way that I don't understand, that there may be people within those groups, because I've heard a missionary say to us and preach that they have gone to places where there have been people who had faith that was the equivalent of the Old Testament faith, 
And so it's, it's possible for someone maybe to have an Old Testament style of faith like David without, you know, monotheistic faith. Uh, like David or Elijah and those guys. So I leave open that possibility that when they, because when they would hear the gospel, then they would come to Christ. So I'll leave that door open because God may do that. But for the most part, I'm just going to, with what scripture says, reside with any group, any people that do not come to Christ. Any individual that doesn't come to Christ is then lost. Yes, sir. talking about individuals. Everybody, every people group has general revelation. You're asking my comment about someone who might have faith? Is that your comment? Yes, all humans have, this, this is written about the Greeks, the Gentiles. All of us have, every, nobody has received general revelation. General revelation has been given to all by God. That's why it is general. Every, if, if you worship, you have acknowledged the existence of God. And you have acknowledged that that God has expectations, namely to worship him. And so if you worship him in a corrupted way, you have sinned against God. And we all worship him in a corrupted way. Yes. See, every, every, just about every group, every culture, hang on, second, hang on, every culture knows that they have certain laws. For instance, every culture knows that murder of some type is wrong. They may qualify it, there may be certain exceptions, but every culture knows that to take another life is wrong, to, 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 to steal is wrong. So there is a moral law within them because there is a moral right and wrong, and they all break the right and wrong. When other words, you break one point of the law, you break all of it. Because they know of all general revelation, they all are guilty of sin. One sin is all you take. And so, even before Abraham came onto the scene, man was guilty of sin. You know, they had very limited, they had no special revelation before Abraham. They had nothing but general revelation, except for a few individuals. But mankind never had special revelation. All they had was the general revelation of God. And God condemned them all as vis-a-vis Noah and and the Tower of Babel. He condemned all of them as sinful because they knew what they should do through the general revelation of God and didn't do it. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, what was you going to say? They They have general, everybody has general revelation. I'm saying, I'm saying that there are, from time to time, missionaries have come across individuals who had an Old Testament-style faith. I leave open that possibility. But he was asking about the general revelation. They all have the revelation. Anything else? All right, I'll see you later. <laughs>